0: Welcome to Halas the Mag, Chicago Bears History by the Decade. I'm Jeff Burkus, a writer for Windy City Gridiron, and I'm partnering up for this special podcast series with lifelong Bears fan and history teacher Matt Winter. Matt, welcome to the realm of podcasting.
1: Well, thank you, Jeff, and thank you for having me. Super excited. 100 years of Bears history. And hopefully, the next hundred years give us plenty of Super Bowl championships. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, we'll. I don't think we'll be around for all hundred of them, but you
0: know, hopefully, a few, and at least uh, let's at least see one. I just want one. Yeah, just one where we're old enough to appreciate it. Little background: uh, Matt and I have actually known each other uh, almost our entire lives, and we've been best friends uh, since first grade. And we actually met over. Uh, Matt wearing a bear shirt first day of school, and I pointed at the bear shirt, gave him a thumbs up, and best friends ever since. So we are. It was uh, that
1: simple. It that's was
0: that simple. all it took, and that's really what it should be as Bears fans. You Just you see the shirt, you see the hat, you give a thumbs up, you're friends. Uh, so well, we uh, came up with this idea to. Uh, have a little fun and and digging into some Bears history. We both really like the history part of of studying football and and getting into it. And we thought it'd be fun to uh, do a show where we took it by the decade and we've developed a bunch of different questions, uh, categories we're calling them, uh, to try to Try to have some fun with some of the history, answer some things. Uh, That'll be in the second half of the show. First half of the show, we're going to go through and basically give kind of a narrative history of what happened during this decade. Uh, Hopefully, we'll have some fun along the way there. Uh, So I picked out a drink for the decade. Uh, It's called the South Side, um, as you guys know. Ooh, what's in that? So the South Side is actually the preferred beverage for uh, Al Capone, who is the famous bootlegger in the Chicago area. And he uh, called it the South Side or the South Side Fizz, and obviously it's with Chicago South Side. It's two ounces of gin, an ounce of lime juice, and three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, and then fresh mint leaves. So
1: I, I need that drink. That you know, I
0: love gin. I, I, yeah, I do, and I think that we could probably. I think you could probably put that. And one of those copper mugs, you know those uh, Moscow yeah. mule mugs. It sounds like a yes. really good summer drink. So, um, something to think about. It's called the Southside. It's popular in the 20s. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll post that recipe when we when we uh, get this podcast out there too. So, anyway, uh, put your favorite Louis Armstrong record on and uh, let's dig into the 1920s. So the 1920s, uh, obviously, it's the first decade of the NFL. Uh, the Chicago Bears recorded a record of 84, 31, and 19. They only won one championship. Uh, That was in 1921. They finished second place five times. uh, As if you add up record by the decade, which, of course, I've done because you know I love spreadsheets. And this was the third best record um, by decade.
1: Oh, we all know Jeff. People on Windy City Gridiron know.
0: Yes. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a spreadsheet for pretty much everything. So so one of the famous notes about Halas before he started the Bears was that he got a so-called cup of coffee in Major League Baseball for the New York Yankees. So as you've always said, Matt, one of the hardest things to do in all of sports is hit a baseball. And apparently Halas wasn't very good at that. He went two for 22. He had eight strikeouts. Uh, he appeared in a total of 12 games. And you know, the season ended uh the next year there's this player uh the the, the yankees made hmm. a trade with a, a, a rival, trade okay right and they acquired this guy by the name of uh george herman ruth george
1: herman ruth hmm. yes uh yes. sounds like he's got potential i get why they let go of Hallis.
0: yeah i mean he was kind of a uh uh you know the otani of his time where he <laughs> would uh he could pitch and he could hit and, you know um yeah, so obviously of the ladies. <laughs> yeah, supposedly. Uh so obviously Babe Ruth is who we're talking about. So Babe Ruth replaced Hallis. Hallis always uh, had a good sense of humor about that and would uh talk about how he was replaced by the great Babe Ruth. Uh, it's not maybe as clean of a replacement as um Hallis made it out to be, but certainly uh <laughs> Babe Ruth did end up playing uh in a position that Hallis played. So that's kind of a fun story. Uh but after Hallis I, I think
1: that's part of the I think that's part of the fascinating part about Alice, too, is his life would be fascinating enough with just the football and just the Bears stuff. But then you throw in this what he played in Major League Baseball, even just for a little bit. And, Jeff, do you know, how did he get on the Yankees? All I've read is says that he tried out. But is there more to the story than that, or is is that it?
0: I, I don't know. And I think that there was probably a lot of overlap between baseball and, and some football in those days, too, right? It's just um... – you got to think that the bar is maybe a little lower uh, than it is nowadays, when you have to specialize in seeming like middle school of what what sport you're going to play. Um, but I think if you were a good athlete in those days, you know, they were interested in at least seeing if you could play um, at that level. And Hallis was a, you know, well he was a collegiate star, uh, so I think he, he probably yeah. got his his chance that way. But no, I don't know and that don't, he was drafted. Don't
1: knock anything. him two for twenty two, Jeff. Uh, I don't think there's been any. Good high school players that could step in there and go two for twenty-two, eight strikeouts, twelve games. So he's making contact most of the time. Granted, not getting hits, but he's playing at the highest level and he's playing for the Yankees. It's just it's a fascinating part of his story. I I wish I wish we knew more about it. To be honest,
0: yeah. Well, I guess two for twenty-two, you probably don't like uh, you know dwell on it. Uh, but it, it, from the Hallis biographies, it basically makes it sound like yeah, that was enough for him to know that he wasn't going to make it. Which seems like a very small sample size, but um, yeah, you know, it's it might have been that simple back then. Well, he just didn't impress in those in those uh, opportunities that he had. So so anyway, obviously he leaves the Yankees. Baseball's not going to be his thing. There is no professional football. There are clubs, um, but he he's an engineer. So he lands a job. He's in Decatur. Uh, he gets hired by Staley Starch Making Company, and uh, a lot of these organ these companies, these these factories, whatever, they, they'll have these uh, club football teams. Mm-hmm. And so House gets involved with, with that, and he founds the Decatur Staley's in 1920, uh, while he's also working. For, for the, the starch making company. Right.
1: So he. Well, they were they were expected to work shifts throughout the day and then they would, what, be allotted a couple hours for practice time.
0: I think if, if I remember in the biography, like they would practice after work and then he actually went to the owner and convinced him to allow him to practice during the day. Uh, Smart. You know, and, Smart, And get paid move. for it, right? Yeah, so it's pretty, pretty funny. Um, and then he, you know, he goes off. There's that story where he goes off into uh, Canton, Ohio, and there's, a, you know, an auto dealer where you know, a bunch of handshake uh, agreements are made, where a little bit of money gets thrown in the pot, and they create the NFL. 1921, uh, Mr. Staley says, "Hey, you know, this probably isn't working for us, but if you want this team to survive, you probably should take it to Chicago." Uh, here's the deal, keep my name as uh, the Chicago Staleys for one season, and then you can do what you want with it. So that's what Hallis does, moves the team to Chicago. In 1921, the Bears are known as the Chicago Staleys just for one season. And then in 1922, Hallis chooses the name Bears literally because he's in town with the Chicago Cubs, Football players are bigger than baseball players. And so Bears are big versions of Cubs. And he, that's how he Makes names
1: sense, it, right? Quick and, quick question, Jeff. Sure. Uh, this Staley guy, how much credit should he get in Bears history? He is the guy that told Hollis to take it to Chicago. He gave him a lot of support in doing so. But this is someone we don't really hear about in Bears history.
0: I mean, I think that... He deserves some credit for being flexible and allowing Alice to run the team the way he wanted. I think he probably would have been smarter to say, um, "I'll take five percent of the team," <laughs> mm, <laughs> or something yeah, like that. Yeah, in hindsight, uh, that would have been better. You know, uh, one year of advertising um, probably lost its uh, you know its its value pretty fast. Now he is um, honored as the the name of the mascot. So the giant bear and a mascot his name is staley which is kind of cool
1: so he's remembered
0: yes i mean his name's out there now a lot of people don't know what the heck that means when they see it but that's that's what it comes from well our listeners know now jeff so... <laughs> they sure do see that's why you tune
1: in to uh, to this to this podcast so... so when when hallis moves to team chicago uh besides changing the name what other changes does he make to the team is it uniforms is it colors is it things like that so I know that he chooses the name. I don't know if he does
0: it when he moves the team, but I know he chooses the color scheme uh, as as Navy and Orange because he went to the University of Illinois, and Illinois is blue and orange. So all he does basically is take the same colors and he just darkens them up a little bit. And so that's that's why it's the same color scheme, but just a darker hues than, than what Illinois has. Um, and so he just kind of borrowed from what he had around him. So Hallis operates as like a player coach, which was very common in that day. But he he operates as a player coach from 1920 until 1928. And then he's a full-time coach in 1929. Um, he actually he has got a really interesting coaching history. It's it's kind of odd. And obviously we're going to get into this throughout the life of this podcast series. Um, but he coaches four 10-year stints.
1: It, <laughs> it, it's so
0: weird to me. Uh, that, that that's how it works out but um, because of World War II um, and because he, he just he wants to focus on other things at other times he takes these breaks and then he comes back right um, so he doesn't have a continuous coaching streak he has four 10-year streaks which I which I found pretty interesting but because he starts in 1920 um, that 10-year streak is the entire decade so for this entire episode Hallis is the only head coach that this team has
1: He's the only head coach, and he's playing, and he plays – it correct me if I'm wrong, but is he a offensive lineman?
0: Well, so most, so at that
1: day, everybody's playing both ways, right? Yes. Um, so he's he's
0: playing more of an end position, um, but you know, the way I like to think of twenties uh, football is that it's much more like I think rugby is, which of course rugby isn't what I think it is uh, because I have no idea what the rules of rugby are. But in terms of like everybody's kind of up in the line, and then there's like a couple backs in the back. It's not like you have. You know the spread offense has not been uh, thought of at this yeah. point, right? I mean, we, we don't have the T formation able. yet, right? They do not have the T formation yet. Yeah, you know, so it is very early on where you've got uh, you know a few backs in the backfield. You know, a quarterback is more of a, a guy that's a running back that has right, the ability to first. hand off right okay um you got some throws a lot of times they're you know pop passes kind of thing but they're it's not anything like you'd see today so it's a very uh primitive form of football uh but Hallis, yeah he, he more plays on the line um but he's he's more of an end uh into end the line kind of guy so okay. um yeah pretty interesting situation where you'd have a guy who was a player coach uh obviously like People might joke about LeBron James being a player coach right now or something like that. But, you know, obviously you don't see that in football. uh, don't see it in football.
1: And and in the NBA, uh, the Celtics would actually do some stuff like that. Back in the later Bill Russell days, uh, Bill Russell would be in part of this and uh, Tablicek would be in charge of this and so on. But you don't see that in sports day. A lot of people say you should. You bring up LeBron. A lot of people think LeBron could easily be a player coach, because let's be face it, let's face reality here. LeBron doesn't, I'm not sure how much he listens to his coaches anyway. <laughs> uh, right. If, if LeBron wants to run this, LeBron's going to run this, and that's just kind of how it is. So one of the things that I think uh, you're going to bring
0: to this podcast series that I can't, because I... You know, I paid attention to some extent in history class, but, you know. You
1: are a strong student, Jeff. Don't sell, sell short. But, you You're know, good at the history.
0: But I did not take any college classes or anything like that in, in history. I, I went to the sciences, you know. So I, you know, I, I, I'm off by multiple decades when, you know, when I think about, oh, did this happen? Was the president at this time? And I'm usually like 10 or 20 years off. So I, I'd be interested if you could just provide us with, the U S history of this decade, like what was happening, what was going on? What were the big things, any kind of like trends or people
1: that were really in the news? Absolutely. Jeff, I'd be happy to, uh, I, I, here's the biggest things as I see it. Let's imagine I'm a guy from that time. I just got out of world war one. I just survived the Spanish flu. Those are two monumental events right right next to each other during the same time. And so I, I probably get back to America. I survived all of that. And then, bang, two amendments. 18th Amendment, they ban alcohol. Right. And I'm not crazy about that because I like to drink. Boom, 19th Amendment, Jeff. Women get the right to vote. Sure. All of this happens within a couple years. World War I, Spanish Flu, banning alcohol, women get the right to vote. And so it, it's a time of change. That's probably the biggest thing I would say about the 1920s is life is changing. We're entering a more modern world. And so my typical day would be I, I get up, I'm married, I got a couple kids, I'm making about three, four G's a year. I get in my maybe a Model T Ford and I drive to work. Uh, maybe I'm in advertisement because there's all these new products, there's, there's uh, vacuum cleaners, there's... There's uh, washing machines. There's all these new things that people are buying, and people are buying them because everyone's making money. People are buying things on credit, and it's just it's a, an extreme time of change and probably a fascinating time for the people back then. Where you're, you know, we get this technology we have now is new, but it, we recognize it all as it's going on. Back then, you're getting these things that people just weren't familiar with. Uh, seeing cars everywhere. These. Uh, listening to things on the radio, going to silent picture movies. And so so I hop into my Model T car and I drive to work. I'm into advertising. I'm making my money. Uh, for fun, uh, we listen to some radio at home, uh, maybe a famous program like Amos and Andy, which, although not uh, politically correct now, was a big hit at the time. I might take the family to a double feature movie. Jeff, double feature movie, silent movies, Right. but 25 cents for a double feature. Uh, later in the decade, they add sound and I'm seeing stars like Charlie Chaplin, the Marx Brothers. Uh, and so a very exciting time. People went to the movies. This was a huge event that these I don't want to call them arenas, but they would have these movie theaters that could hold 500, 1000 people. And it would be very common for people to go to a movie a week. And so that's the biggest thing at, at home. People listening to the radio. Uh, that's a huge thing. There's music. I think always jazz gets a lot of attention for that decade, and rightfully so. You might be listening to some Louis Armstrong. You might be listening to some Duke Ellington. And just culturally, we're, we're developing in America this first time this popular culture where people are listening to the same things. People are watching the same movies. People are starting to dress the same. Uh, for the men, uh, you, you ever seen like a a movie that's based in the 20s or 30s and uh, men are wearing those pants that just go right above or right below the knees oh sure yeah those those are called plus fours Uh, i've always thought they look good because back in the day playing baseball i preferred the baseball pant pulling them up to right below the knee i just thought that was so comfortable and i remember seeing these movies and just thinking god those pants look really comfortable i would want to wear those so Men are wearing stuff like that, of course, suits. Men are still wearing suits. You look at sporting events back in the day, everyone is dressed to the nines. They're wearing suits. They're looking great. Just so That was what was expected for people at the time. For the women, of course, you think of the 1920s women. You think of the flapper movement, uh, these simpler dresses that women were wearing. They're cutting their hair shorter. They're getting more independent. Jeff, it freaked a lot of men out at the time. I'm not <laughs> sure most men were happy with that, but... Uh, just the change the change is the biggest thing going on for that time uh, presidents are pretty standard there's some scandals but uh, for the most part business is good business is booming the the wealth of the nation doubles within that decade and of course we know how the decade ends with the stock market crash right into the great depression but for the most part the 1920s are a Pretty darn good time to be an American, and That's, I think it's it's fittest. Go ahead. Well, it seems like a time of excess, right? Like it's a the Great Gatsby
0: is kind of the the standard, you know, description of what that decade was like. Where, like you said, you're coming off of a World War, you're coming off of a you know a really terrible uh, health uh, scare in the Spanish Flu uh, that that took a lot of lives as well, and so you've got these multiple things that you know people are. Are past, and then it, you know, things start to pick up with with money. But you've had this, like, you know, this uh, this period of time where you had so much sacrifice and so much loss, and so you almost like sw- swing the pendulum so far in the other way, where there's a lot of just um, excess and, like you said, a lot of social change, and it, it just seems like uh, it's just this huge amount of consumption uh, that was
1: um, just really kind of crazy. Huge amount of consumption, huge amount of production as well. Uh, we produced almost all the world's cars during this time. you got to remember, Europe is devastated by World War I. They don't have the capacity to start manufacturing like we do. Uh, we were untouched on our soil for World War One, and so we're just making things, we're sending them, we're making money. Uh, and yeah, people, uh, this is really the start of American consumerism where uh, we're not only wanting to buy these things, we're wanting to buy the newest thing. That's a big thing with cars is, uh, this Model T it was—it was a reliable. It was a good car, but they start to realize too. Ooh, we got to start making different models of cars to get people to want to buy the biggest, newest thing. Which is something that still goes on today. And so, life is good. Life is fun. There's all these different, changing things that people can get into, and uh, it had to be just a very exciting time to be an American. So I I wanted to find
0: one interesting Bears tidbit. And uh, the thing that I came across that I think is the most interesting, and obviously we're going to get in more into... Uh, Red Grange and uh, more of the players in a bit, but one of the things that I think is worth talking about now is in 1925, Red Grange was like the first superstar college player to sign a professional contract. So George Hallis is able to secure a contract with Red Grange, and it's kind of a crazy number, uh, but uh, Grange got a salary and a percentage of the gate, and the reports were that he was able to net $100,000 right in that in that time that's a crazy amount of money right So I, I, I don't know if that's a it's a real number because it seemed, it's such a round number and he had a promoter that was uh, known to, to, to fib a little bit. so maybe it wasn't quite a hundred thousand but that's that's the story. And so let's say it's a real number. So I went went online and I, I did a you know an inflation calculator to figure out how much that money is worth in today's market. And it's about a, a one point five million dollars. And if you think about Which it Which is nice. Right. No, I mean Very nice. Hey, I would love to make that. I never gonna you have to buy one. a model you can <laughs> buy a lot of model T's with that. You'd buy Model T's for everybody you know. So uh you know, nowadays an NFL contract for one point five million dollars is like Veteran minimum kind of money, right? Um, but in a in a fledgling league that was only a few years old, I mean that's an astronomical amount of money. And so I went to the the you know the actual national pastime uh, during the twenties, which was baseball. And I'm trying to find the highest salaries in baseball, and I came across a website that had them all uh, ranked. Babe Ruth in 1925 made.
1: I want to say he's making around the same thing eventually, but oh, you said 52. No, he
0: made he only made 52,000 in 1925. So he's making twice what Babe Ruth made in that one year, which is just crazy. Right. And and then I I went down the list and it wasn't until Joe DiMaggio in 1949. So after World War II that uh, a baseball player made a hundred thousand dollars for a season. So what you're saying is there's no way he made that much. I don't think he did. But let's say that he did. It's an astronomical amount of money. And that's and that's such an interesting flair to what this was. Remember, he's getting a percentage of the gate, which Hallis yes. is also getting, and he's using Hallis is using his percentage of the gate to play his pay his players, including Grange. So he's mm-hmm. he's he had this really interesting setup. Um, and it's just a, it's just a ton of money, but I just found it f- interesting that a fledgling league was able to pay a star player something that the big time uh, league at the time, Major League Baseball, didn't see for another twenty five years.
1: Is there is there anything that this compares to? Uh, thinking about this, maybe the only parallel might be uh, Herschel Walker with the USFL uh, considered the best. College player at that time, not going to the NFL, going to the USFL is. But even then, I think that pales in comparison to how big this was.
0: Well, it it, it you know that was a rival league that was trying to steal away players, whereas this is like a new league, right? It, like uh, the famous college. Coaches at the time hated the idea of pro football. They they ripped it to shreds. And there were a lot of college players that were moonlighting as professional players. Like so, they would play on Saturdays and then they would play under false names in pro leagues on Sundays so that they could get a little extra money. Um, you know, imagine that happening today. <laughs> uh, obviously, you can't because everybody knows who everybody is. But you know, college players trying to get paid you know, uh, in college, uh, makes sense. And in the twenties, they were able to do that. I don't know how you play it's, a game, two games on a weekend. Um, but that a lot of those players were doing that. Uh, but as a profession, it was not thought to be something you did
1: beyond college. It's funny to think that exceptional college athletes were still trying to get paid in different ways. hundred years, Yeah. Before. That's what They're I'm still saying. trying to do it today. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think
0: that's, uh, it's something that's has not been resolved in a hundred years. So, um, so, I think that it's time for us to kind of go through the major key players um, from okay. from this era. So, so I've got I identified eight. The first guy that I wanted to talk about is a guy named Guy Chamberlain. He went to Nebraska. He fought in World War One. A lot of these guys did uh, that played in the twenties. They were World War One veterans, or maybe they were just outside of that. Uh, but he he plays end and halfback for the Decatur Staleys in 1920 only. Right. So he was he was very big. So. You know, six foot three may not sound huge in today's world, but six foot three hundred years ago was It's a big boy. Yeah. So in in his professional career, he goes on and plays in five championship teams and he is named to like postseason, like, you know, first team all pro kind of honors uh, four times in the 20s. Um, 1920, he's he's the he's a he's an all-pro end. Uh, 1921, he returns an interception 90 yards to seal a victory uh, in what was. Uh, essentially the championship game. They didn't have championship games in the 20s. Uh, they just went off of their record, uh, something that Hallis would eventually change in the rules. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a Hall of Famer. Um, and uh, the thing that I think that's most interesting about Chamberlain is that he goes on to have this like super successful career as a player coach. Uh, he was part of the Canton-slash-Cleveland Bulldogs and also part of the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. Uh, his career record in his first six years of football 56 three and eight ties like 56 three and eight it's unbelievable so this guy he kind of torments Hallis because the Hallis Bears teams they keep finishing second and a lot of times they're finishing second to Chamberlain's team so he's kind of this like super champion and I've, I had, well
1: what, wasn't there like five years in a row where the Bears finish second?
0: I don't or know if they it, win. It I don't 21. know if it was year in, off the top of my head if it was in a row, but they finished five. They finished second five times throughout the twenties, and so it, I know that had to drive Hallis nuts. Um, but you know they they used the just calculated it based on record and not in any sort of like championship game. So that eventually got changed. But uh, so were,
1: were there a set amount of games these people were playing, or was there a specific not number of games in the season? That's that's another thing that gets regulated
0: at some point. But during uh, the twenties, it's kind of crazy. Like teams are just setting up the games as, as they can. So there's all these different yeah, different teams are playing different numbers of games, and the record uh, the schedules aren't standardized. So you might not play common opponents all that much. You know, so some teams might have a much easier schedule than others. So it's really kind of wild west in the early days. There's no real rhyme or reason, um, and it honestly the Bears they. The number of games that they play changes every year in the 20s. So Chamberlain, um, the one thing that I could find that Hallis said about him was he called him the best two-way end he'd ever seen and that he was a tremendous tackler on defense and a triple threat performer on offense. So uh, I think in those days, he could run, and he could throw, and he could kick. I think that's what triple threat meant. Um, In
1: in my research, I found a number of guys that would kick, which fascinates me. Yeah, right,
0: because there there weren't specialists back then. Like, you had to play both ways, and somebody had to kick. So, you know, a lot of times it was the guys that also scored the touchdowns would just kick their own extra point so that's what i know about chamberlain what about ed healy
1: ed healy and I, I gotta say first off jeff i knew nothing about most of these guys with the exception of red grange but ed healy gets discovered by george hallis now hallis is playing this is right away when the bears are a new team and healy is destroying hallis and so hallis can't let that happen and so it, it's unclear what hallis is doing here but hallis is uh, on the line healy is a defensive lineman. I guess Hallis just starts holding him, starts chopping him, just starts having to take this guy out. And it gets to the point where Healy about murders George Hallis. And then (laughs) Hallis goes back to the huddle and says, okay, boys, because they they keep running to his side, and they're they're holding him and hurting him. And, all right, boys, I want this guy on your team, so we're going to start running the other way. And so that's how Hallis discovered Healy. He was playing for this Rock Island team. Now he's playing for the Bears. And he is, according to Hallis... Uh, the most he had uncommon speed for lineman, and is one of the most versatile tackles in history and so he has a winning record in each of the six seasons he played with the team never gets to win the championship but like we said before they're always finishing second they're always good but they just they can't get to the championship and so he's uh, 6-1-2-10 which back then is pretty good and apparently he is just fast. Uh, I, I I picture him in my head, you know, one of those explosive pass rushers off, off the end and just can't, not that they're rushing the quarterback necessarily back then, but this guy is an athlete. He's playing on the line. And probably the one of the best highlights I found for him is this is during their 66-day barnstorming tour after they've signed Red Grange, and they're playing this L.A. team. And this L.A. team has this supposedly sensational running back named George Wilson. And so Wilson breaks out in the open. He's going to go all the way and out of nowhere Healy comes, he's hurdling teammates and he makes this touchdown saving tackle in front of 60,000 people. And he called it probably his biggest thrill as a professional football player is making that play. And so, you know, uh, later in the pro- uh, later in the podcast we're going to talk about guys that might have been able to fit in in the modern game. Right. And I think this guy is a candidate given his decent size, good size for the time, and his uh, athleticism and speed. And so that's Ed Healy.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so basically, Hallis, if, if you can't beat him, acquire him to play on your own team. It must have been his uh, philosophy back then. Smart philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. So my next guy is George Trafton. And i and I got to be honest with you. This is, uh, I love this guy. I George Trafton, This is the kind of guy that he played today. I think the closest uh, uh, guy that I can say he reminds me of would be Olin Croutz. Uh, okay, because you are a
1: huge, Olin. Kruiser. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So this is you know George Trafton's in the Hall of Fame. He's a Chicago native, and I, I consider him more of a brawler uh, than than he was a, a, a lineman. He actually was a boxer, to like an amateur boxer. And apparently the oh, wow. story is that he got to uh, a fight with uh, White Sox first baseman Art Shires at the time. And they were kind of going back and forth, and so um, they didn't like each other. So they set up a, a, a professional fight, and he knocked him out. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and, and then he, he 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 fought a couple more amateur matches, and then he actually got into the ring with a professional fighter, and he got knocked out. Trafton got knocked out super fast, and he got against his the pro yeah against the pro and got his license like pulled, so he could never because he went down too fast. He could never be in another professional fight
1: because <laughs> he, he got knocked out. Oh, so dude, did, did I think he took the dive on that? No, one no, no. Money? I think
0: it was like he, like as an amateur guy, as a brawler, like he was, you know, he was fine, but like he wasn't a professional fighter. So, okay. Uh, All right. So, yeah. So to me, uh, he, he kind of sounds like the perfect heel someone that oh, like, yes. he's kind of like a bad boy, right? Um, there was a quote that I Someone
1: called. that if, if he's on your team, you love him, but if he's on the other team, you hate his guys.
0: Yes. So I had found this quote that said, he was strongly disliked in every NFL city except for Green Bay, where he was truly hated. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. So um, that's the kind of type of guy that you just love. But, you know, Trafton goes on. He makes uh, – during his, his tenure with the Bears, and he, he's on this uh, All-Pro uh, several times. Uh, he's the 1920s uh, center of the decade by the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, he goes in in 1964 as a Hall of Famer, so the, the Hall of Fame second class. He, he's, he's obviously an excellent professional lineman, uh, but one of the things that I think is very interesting is he's credited as the first guy to snap the ball with one hand also the first guy on defense to move off the line and roam a little bit uh and so not just play like straight up as a defender he would he would kind of roam around and i kind of think that and I, this is totally just in my head but i think it for him he was just doing it on his own like he's just a freelancer and his coaches probably probably drove him nuts but he would just kind of like oh, i'm just gonna kind of get up and move around um but I, as a as a coach, it's definitely one of those. Uh,
1: what? No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, good point. Good Do that again. Don't ever do Glad that again. Glad I, <laughs> I drew that up. <laughs> right.
0: Um, so Trafton's nickname uh, it, back in his playing days was the brute, which I think makes a lot of sense. And you uh you actually mentioned Rock Island uh, with the last guy during a game against Rock Island. He threw. Uh, their halfback Fred Chicken, not not a made-up name, that was his name, threw, Fred Chicken. threw him into the fence and broke his leg, uh, and I guess it that's my type of bear it created such a crazy uh, you know ruckus with the crowd that they started throwing bottles and rocks, and so when they had a rematch um, at the end of the game, Hallis grabbed the share of the gate, which was three thousand dollars, and had, handed it to Trafton, and then the whole team. Ran for the train to try to outrun the the, the angry fans, and it's like
1: out of a movie. Yeah, and
0: so Hallis was asked why did he why would he do that? And Hallis says uh, if trouble came and they they you know confronted Hallis, he would only be running for the money, and so he might be liable to give it up. But if they came for trafton, he'd be running for his life. So he thought the money was safer with him. <laughs> right. So you've got uh, a couple of brothers that played for the Bears. You want to talk about those guys? Yeah.
1: I, I'm so happy I got these two because i had never heard of either. The idea of siblings playing professionally has always been interesting to me, especially two guys playing on the same team, especially two guys that are really important to the franchise and really good. Uh, Dutch is the older one. He plays with Hollis at Illinois. Jeff, he had a mechanical engineering degree. Sure. And he decided to play football, but he finished that up, got his degree, starts playing football. The Staley's are going to play this team that uh, Dutch, and by the way, Dutch, fantastic name. The, the nickname, Jeff, for the 20s are fantastic, 20s and 30s. Why don't we have great <laughs> nicknames today? That bothers me. So it's it's Edward Dutch in and uh, Dutch is recruiting this team to take on the Staley's. So this is before they're the Bears, and the Staleys had beaten them really good the time before, and so Sternerman's like, that's not happening again. Gets all these great players to take on the Staleys, but the Staleys don't show up. And so, you know, Hallis is, sees that, and Hallis says, I got to have the Sternerman guy, because they knew each other from Illinois. He gets them on the team. He's on the first Bears team, and uh, he's uh, running back most of the time, and he scores Decent amount of TDs in his career. He scored 11 TDs in 1920 and What I had no idea about is from basically when they become the Bears from here on out uh, Him and Hallis are kind of the co-owners of the team. They're basically they run the team together And I had never heard about that and throughout most of the 20s. It's him and Hallis that are running the show and Being very successful at it during that time. I know it's not the 20s, but in the 30s From what I read, they both had a chance to take control of the Bears. Because they come to the conclusion that they can't co-own the team anymore. It's just going to have to be one of them to make this work. Because they did not really like each other. And a lot of that relates to their brother, or uh, Dutch's brother, who I'll get to soon. But according to the story, they both put in bids. And Halas's bid was just more. He gets control of the team. And you never really hear about this Sterneman guy again, in terms of bare lore. I had—had had you ever heard of this guy before you started uh, doing this?
0: Uh, well, I mean, it's not fair because I did all this work for the Championship Belt series. Well, I, uh, before before the Championship Belt, um, had you heard of this guy? You know, I mean, I—the first time I came across it was when I read the Hallis biography, um, mm-hmm. and and so that's that's probably the first time I I came across him. But you know, he's a name that's there, but he's probably not as. Uh, talked about as much as probably needs to be
1: yeah well from what I've read he is as much of a coach of the team as Hallis is he's a good player uh he gets his younger brother to come play and that leads me into Joey his younger brother Joey now uh Dutch is only 5'8 180 his brother Joey is 5'6 maybe 150 pounds probably 140 pound range Joey is the quarterback on some of those early 20s Bears teams. He's a two-time All-Pro. Uh, in, in reading this, it made me think of, and granted this is quite a stretch, but like a, a Kyler Murray type. Okay. Because he's fast, he's tough. Uh, he, I read one article that talked about like their favorite play to run would be, basically he would, it sounds like a bootleg, he would just run out, And if he could throw it to someone, he would. if not, he would just take off and run. By a lot of accounts of that era, just one of the toughest guys around. And he's he's 5'6", 150. That's minuscule for today. Even back then, that's tiny. He runs into some trouble with house because he leaves a couple times. As you've alluded to, there's competing leagues. There's different leagues. Uh, Twice, he would leave, go play for another one, but then he would come back. And so... I think that's part of the reason why him and his brother just had this complicated relationship with Hallis, and I don't know if that's a reason that we don't hear about him much. But this guy was a two-time All-Pro and, by all accounts, just a heck of a player in the '20s.
0: Well, you know, the winners write the history books, so Absolutely. I suppose that that might be part of it. Uh, the The other guy, the other back that I wanted to talk about from the early part of the '20s was Pete Stinchcomb. And he came in. He's an Ohio State guy, and he, he didn't play for very long, but he uh, he did win uh, or earned first team all pro honors in two seasons with Chicago. And he came along as kind of this package deal, um, which is kind of a weird story. But this guy named Chick Harley, uh, who was this outstanding player in Ohio State, brought some guys with him, right? So Hallis mm-hmm. uh, gave Chick Harley a... Uh, an ownership stake for bringing these players along, right? So it's like this package deal that Chick Harley was able to to bring with him, and it's 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 kind of this weird thing. Like, doesn't make any sense with you know the draft and everything today, but it was kind of like this like uh, posse of guys. That like, I mean, hey, you sign me, you get all these other guys, and so house does it and he gives this ownership stake up. But about halfway through the season. Uh, Harley fails his physical because the doctor dis- discovers that he has syphilis. <laughs> and, and, and it's uh, uh-huh. in the ownership agreement. He uh, needed to be healthy and, and play, play this team. And so he actually loses his ownership stake. He takes it to the NFL owners and the owners all back uh, Hallis in the vote. And so uh, it reverts. The ownership stakes revert back to Hallis and Dutch. And so, so there was a third partner at one time, but he wow. lost his ownership stake because of syphilis. So it that's not syphilis Pete, took down many a man. It's very true. Not Pete Pete Stinchcomb. This was Chick Harley, but he, Stinchcomb came because of Harley and then left. I think uh, basically as as the the partnership dissolved. So um, I just I think that story is just. So fascinating and so bizarre that it has to be more known to Bears fans that that was part of it. But, um, all right, we got two guys left that we need to talk about about this decade. And the guy that you're going to talk about is the Galloping Ghost, Red Grange.
1: Again, the nickname. I don't know if there's a better football football nickname for a runner nope. than the Galloping Ghost. That's, it's perfect. It is absolutely perfect. And uh, we're, we'll talk about it later. But in the 1920s, the NFL is a fledgling league. They needed Red Grange. Red Grange was as big of a college football star as maybe there has ever been. He is the ultimate get for the NFL. When Hallis signs him to the NFL, it instantly gives the NFL credibility. There are, they are instantly able to start filling seats because people want to see this guy. And one of the most random things I love about him, number 77. It's just so <laughs> random. And, and, of course, back, back in the day... From what I've seen, their jersey numbers didn't seem to make a lot of sense. But just the thought of the best athlete on the field wearing 77 just makes me happy. But uh, what one of his—probably the game that put him on the map in college as this huge star, they're playing Michigan, and he scores four touchdowns, Jeff, in the first 12 minutes. Kickoff, 95 yards, return it for a touchdown— and he scores on runs of 67, 56, and 44 yards. He scores six touchdowns in the game total, but this helps Illinois and Michigan's 20-game unbeaten streak at the time. And from that that day on, he's a huge star. And he gets signed. Hallis signs him, and we already talked about the money. But I, from this point going forward, since we don't have a lot of stats or anything from some of these games is – Red Grange gets hurt pretty early into his professional career. Apparently devastating knee injury, and he's never the same after. And so this guy who is legendary without truly doing that much for the Bears or in professional football in general, it's really sad to think about what he could have been. But he gets this knee injury. Uh, He keeps playing for a while. He he leaves the Bears for a bit, but then he comes back and – I think he plays on the defensive side mostly. Uh, Carries the ball every now and then, but we have stats from his later career, and they're not impressive. But I I think he's this almost Bo Jackson type of guy where he's just larger than life, and he's one of the biggest reasons I think he has to be that professional football uh, takes off and gets some attention during his time. Because like you said, the college coaches look down on it. People weren't sure about professional football. They loved college football so much, it was uncertain whether this NFL was going to work or any of the other competing leagues at the time were going to work. And so just just a sad story that he had that injury. But man, I, I think your average football fan, Bear fan or not, has probably heard of Red Grange, well, and they've probably heard of his nickname. It's,
0: it's kind of crazy. A couple of things there to kind of follow up. Um, the injury actually happened against the Bears, and George Trafton is the guy that hit him uh, that, that tore up his knee. And so, oh, is that right? Absolutely. And so, so, that's pretty crazy. And then I think at that time, so, you know, there's a great sports writer of the time. His name was Grantland Rice and for those of you that are like matt and i you probably enjoyed the website grantland that got dissolved and it's now the ringer um that's miss it every day ringer's good ringer's good but yeah grantland was right that's named after grantland rice uh one of the, the the great sports writers of our of our nation's history and he I believe is credited with giving the nickname the galloping ghost and he wrote these amazing accounts of of Grange playing. And so really it was this the sports writers that built this mystique of Grange and how amazing he was and it captivated people so much that that's why they flocked to see this guy is because they were reading these these amazing uh the the sports writing so it's it's actually also kind of a testament to the golden age of sports writing
1: which i well that that makes a lot of sense too because from what i can tell even on that barnstorming tour like i think i read in his first game he barely did anything and so maybe this is a guy that was more myth than you know the actual legend but uh, maybe we'll never know with a knee injury. Well, they were trying to that, save him. That's a fascinating They
0: point. were trying to save You know, they didn't play much. Uh, you know, they, he wouldn't play the whole game because they wanted to make sure he stayed healthy and he stayed fresh. So I know they didn't play him the whole game. I think they, they played him half the game, like first quarter, third quarter, or something like that. Uh, but, but yeah, it is uh, it is pretty fascinating that, you know, you have this, you, you know, you don't have Twitter. You don't have, uh, you don't even have TV, right? You just have this. Uh, this this guy that you're reading newspaper accounts of, and he mm-hmm. sounds like the greatest athlete of all time. I got to go see this guy. Oh, he's coming to town.
1: And who was a legitimate college star. I mean, he, absolutely. the numbers he put up in college are staggering.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, he was a star. I mean, I believe that he was great. Um, but, it, but yeah, and the Bears picked him as the bobblehead for the 1920s. So, you know, the Bears see him as the epitome of that decade. So, um, definitely a, just a fascinating guy. And like you say, Galloping Ghost is great. Um, my last guy that I wanted to make sure that we that Bears fans know about and we talk about is Paddy Driscoll. And in my opinion, this guy is just uh, someone that Bears fans need to know more about. Uh, he has a kind of an intertwined, interesting history with George Hallis. He played with Hallis in college and actually was uh, the uh, guy that threw him the touchdown pass in the 1919 Rose Bowl. Uh, Hallis okay. was the MVP of that game. I, I think it was honestly Hallis's uh, pinnacle as an athlete. You know, it's like this is the the the, the best game he ever had. Um, was this 1919 Rose Bowl? But well, hey, that's a heck of a time to no do. Kidding. It. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and so Driscoll actually he plays in the NFL, but he's playing with uh, the the Cardinals, the the crosstown Cardinals, and.
1: So there was two teams in Chicago.
0: Yes, they are first in Racine, and then they moved to Chicago. So, uh, and they and they the Cardinals are actually the team that played in Soldier Field for a long time. The Bears, as, as really? we know, played in Wrigley for a long time. But the the Cardinals were actually playing in Soldier Field.
1: Um, so I assume this is the same franchise that eventually moves to St. Louis and eventually to Arizona. Correct.
0: So, uh, so Driscoll he gets traded after the 1925 season. The Cardinals actually win the 1925 championship. He gets traded to the Bears because he has a contract demand that no one else in the NFL can reach. And after Grange leaves, uh, he does his own thing in 1926, Hallis has this money left over from the barnstorming tour. He's able to sign uh, Driscoll. He's the only guy in the league that can afford it. And so as opposed to losing Driscoll to a rival league, he just goes cross town and plays for the Bears, um, starting in 1926. He's already an established star. He's a stud. In 1926, he comes in and he's just he just picks up you know where he left off and went with the Cardinals. He's an absolute stud. He leads the league in scoring in 1926. He's a first team All Pro in 26 and 27. Um, I mean he he's just he's just great. And to me, he's the player in the back part of the 20s for the Chicago Bears pretty interesting stuff so those those are the eight Bears players that we think are most important to kind of understand this decade and a little bit of history Um, we're going to take a quick break and on the other side of this we're going to do we're going to have some fun and we're going to get into some categories so stick with us and we'll be right back All right, Matt. Let's talk about categories. So we we both kind of pitched in some ideas on categories, and one important thing to note here is that Matt and I did not talk about what our answers were before this, uh, before we started recording, because we thought it'd be a little bit more fun if there was some mystery. You know, so we we might agree on some things, and we might disagree. So we'll, we'll see where that goes, but. Uh, I know.
1: Given it's the 1920s, there's not a lot of info. I think we will agree on a lot. of Well, stuff. and
0: there's only so many guys. Uh, you know, the the rosters are smaller. Um, you know, there's there's only so many moves that we can kind of talk about. But as we move forward in this series with with uh, the categories, it may be may be more interesting. But, Matt, I know you like random statistics as much as i do so uh the first first category that i have is what is your favorite or what is the best random statistic of the decade that you came across
1: uh it it goes back to the sternum brothers and there was about three years in a row where the Sternerman brothers account for anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of the bears points okay and so i that just fascinates me that you have two brothers, and they're scoring almost all your points. And this happened in the early nineteen twenties. And so, I just I think that's something you won't probably ever see again.
0: No, no, absolutely not. Um, I actually we kind of talked about it earlier, and, and now that I actually see the numbers in front of me, but uh, for me, uh, this is more of a stat, but it's definitely numbers. Um, the The number of teams in the NFL and the number of games that the Bears played never stayed the same during the
1: decade. So So what at how many teams did it get up to or how low did it get? What was the right range? so in
0: nineteen twenty um, there were fourteen and then it bounced all the way up to twenty-two and then a lot of those teams uh, folded or consolidated and it went all the way down to twelve by the end of the decade. So nineteen twenty-nine there were only twelve remaining. Um, the Bears played 13 games in 1920. It went as low as 11 games in 1924. And there were 17 games played in 1925 with those uh, Red Grange Barnstorming Tour. And then by the end yeah. of the decade, it was 15. But it never stayed the same. It just changed every year. Um,
1: the players' union today would have a fit.
0: <laughs> yes. All right. This one's this one would be interesting. Uh, who do you think the best player of the decade was?
1: Well... Uh... Again, I found this question so tough because the Bears are very successful during this time, and they they have some of the great players that you mentioned. But uh, to me, it's probably got to be the star QB they brought over, Patty Driscoll. Mm. And uh, this guy established star when the Bears get him. The Bears get him. They have a lot of success with him. And I think in terms of what you're looking for, and not – you're looking for a dominant QB still today. Back then, I imagine too. It's it's still one of the most important positions. And the fact that Hallis was able to get this guy uh, was a huge moment. And I think he's the best player of the decade. So it's interesting because I thought that I was going to have to convince you that
0: it was Patty Driscoll because that was my choice. Who, who well. did you think I would pick? I think he, I, Grange just because of the the. Uh, you know the allure around him and the and the lore, because I, I think that that's the I think that's the answer that most Bears fans would have right away, but I think when you start digging in, I think that it's um, it's more about Driscoll, uh, and maybe you could make a, an argument for Trafton, um, because he's he plays almost the entire decade for the Bears and he's a Hall of Fame center, uh, but just. Driscoll was kind of at a different level.
1: I, I thought about going you're you're right, I would have picked Red Grange before I started doing my research, and then once you do the research, you hate to say it, you're kind of disappointed in Grange. But <laughs> yeah. I was I was close to picking one of the Sternman boys. Okay. I was close to picking Dutch just because he was a good player, not a great player, but super important to the franchise, a better player than Hallis. And I was also close to picking his brother. His brother was a two time all pro early in the decade. And even though I, Hollis I got the feeling Hallis kind of couldn't stand him, right. brought him back a couple times. So you don't bring back a guy that you can't stand a couple times unless he's really, really good. So I would have been fine with any of those guys. All right, well, what about this question? Who's your favorite player? Now, obviously, we weren't alive
0: during this decade, and so you didn't get to watch him uh, Of course. play. But, like, who is your favorite player that you learned about? And, and maybe you can answer it this way. Like, if you... Knowing who you are and how you approach uh, Chicago Bears football, who do you think would be, your, you would say your favorite player is if you were back in that day?
1: Well, I, I have two answers. One is more legitimate. than another. My my legitimate answer is this Joey Sturdeman guy, 5'6", 140. Uh, <laughs> they say he could crack walnuts with his hands. He was just this... So tough. I just I found him fascinating. That would probably be my favorite player. I love the underdogs. I love yep. the guys that are supposedly, you know, your Tom Waddle types, either too short, too slow, or too something. It yeah. would probably be him. I have a fun answer, and this is a quarterback from the early twenties. I imagine they had multiple quarterbacks that played at the same time. I, I'm not sure how it worked at the time, but Jeff, my second choice for favorite player of the decade is a man named Milton Romney aka Mitt <laughs> Romney.
0: Yeah, his it's uh his great uncle.
1: Yes. His the current Mitt Romney's namesake played for the Bears in the early 1920s. When I saw that I was dumbfounded, I saw he was born in Utah, so I I had to assume he was related to the US senator and former presidential candidate Mitt Romney and the research I did, yeah, he's like you said uh, his uh, namesake and so that uh, it's just that's too fun not to share <laughs> no it is and he actually like you
0: know he's he's in the record books man like he, scores he some scored he scored some touchdowns yeah yeah he's 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 definitely uh he made his mark so it's that's that's a pretty fun story um all right for me it's george trafton uh it, it, this is of kind of a no-brainer yeah of course it, as just, it should be. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, I mean, this is the kind of, get, like, just, you know, this is one of those guys where if he was being drafted today, the, you know, the analyst would be like, he really plays with a nasty streak, you know? <laughs> All right, so this category is, like, the best moment or the best play or, like, the best thing that happened. It's kind of open-ended, but, like, what, from your research, was kind of the thing that stuck out as, like, this was, like, the
1: coolest thing that happened on the field? I mentioned it. I spoiled it before, but in front of 60,000 fans, Ed Hewley's uh, catch him from behind touchdown saving tackle. Uh, the yeah, the D-end, yeah. the the big D-end catching the star running back, getting him at the end. That's my favorite thing I came into.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's a a good one. You know, for me, I actually have founder George Hallis. Um, He had a a fumble that he picked up, and he returned for a touchdown. It was 98 yards.
1: 98 yards. Wow. Absolutely, right? So, like,
0: okay, great, right? It's like the 1920s. He sets a record, of course, because, you know, it's the 1920s. You know, you don't have to, you know, whatever. That record stands until 1972, when Jack Tatum of the Raiders breaks it with like a 104 yard return. Wow. So he's way down the list now, but like he has this record that lasts had it for like over first, 50 years. Yeah. He had it for a whole long time. So I think that's just really cool that, you know, Hallis has this record that, cause he was like, he was a good player. He wasn't a great player, um, but he has this like professional record that stands for a super long time, which I just find like to be just fantastic. So, um, all right. So like, all right, let's put on our GM uh, thinking caps here and talk about the best and worst roster moves. So this can be, uh, you know, obviously they don't have a draft yet, but like it could be a draft pick um, when we get to that point in the, in the series. It can be a signing. It can be a trade, whatever. What do you think the best roster move was?
1: From Rock Island Football Club, they got... Dominant D end Ed Healy for $100, Jeff. $100. That's, that's not even an undrafted free agent. I don't know what to compare that to in modern times. It's $100 back then. It's not even that much money back then for a guy that is going to be a dominant football player. Steel. Steel for Hallis.
0: All right, for me, I that's that's actually a really good answer given the compensation. And for me, I put I put Grange in twenty five. Uh, and it basically, it's because it really just launches the NFL into being legitimate. And I just think that's really important it was it was it was kind of this ballsy deal that he that he comes up with yeah house is known to be this super cheap guy right like that's his reputation is that he doesn't pay his players and he's super cheap and here he is going out and like making the biggest splash move ever right like this thing is like gigantic move to get this absolute star to come play in this in this league and really puts the nfl on a path to be the nfl and to to be the league that rises above the rest and so for me i just thought i you can't avoid it you have to say grange but totally uh, i think your compensation is an excellent way to approach that because they don't pay much to get healy and that's great
1: great great call for grange can't argue it and you're exactly right. Halas was not one to throw money around. What it's, I think Mike Dicka has the quote, he threw around quarters like they were manhole covers or something like that. He's a cheap guy. Right. Hitting Grange, huge moment. Uh, Jeff, what would you call the worst roster move of the decade?
0: So for me, I think it's, uh, and I don't know exactly how this happened. It's not like there's great records of why uh, Chamberlain left after the 1920 season, but because Chamberlain just absolutely dominates and terrorizes George Hallis, I have to just say that like letting him leave is the worst roster move that Hallis made.
1: I have you? to, I have to agree 100. It's, and it seems very un-Hallis like that it didn't work out. You, you look at all these moves Halas is making in the 20s, like everything pretty much works out. He's either, the guys that leave, they eventually come back and he gets value out of them. But this is kind of the one time where it's the uh, it's the wrong decision.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's And again, it's tough to like, uh, to sift through roster moves. You don't really know much, but this is the one that kind of stuck out to me as being like, this guy didn't play for the Bears for nearly long enough. And he just, kills the bears so that's that's a tough one um all right what about favorite what if this is this is one of those like alternate history questions which i know that you like you're a big fan of these um you know what if this happened so did you come up with anything of like what if this happened wouldn't this be cool for the bears
1: i wanted to say red grange but once i started researching how the team did in the 20s my what if is what if there was a playoff system in place? How many championships uh. would the Bears have won during the 1920s? And also, if the Bears are winning these championships, uh, how does that make the league evolve differently? Because Halas had so much control over the league, they're not winning championships. Did that impact decisions he made for the league going forward? Versus, let's say they win four or five championships, which they very well could have during that decade. Does that impact... The evolution of the nfl does the nfl turn out as good as it does if the bears and hallis have all that ultimate success early on i don't know to me that's the biggest what if that's that fascinates me the most is Hallis came up short so, so close all those times in the 20s i think that had to have had an impact on how he ran things going forward
0: yeah, I think that's interesting. Even just if you think you finished first once and second five times, so let's say you were in the championship game six times and just you know coin flip you win half, yeah, of them, right. Like you know you're probably gonna win three championships instead of one. So yeah, that that's pretty interesting. I, I uh, for me I, I did go Grange and it, for me it was let's say that Hallis and Grange come to a contract agreement in twenty six. What I think that means is that they pr- they're not gonna be able to sign Driscoll as well because they're going to have one kind of max contract player right and so you know he's not going to be able to afford both uh but you know what do the bears are the the bears able to win championships Mm -hmm. in 26 and 27 with rick grange and further like does that mean Grange doesn't get injured? Because he gets injured against the Bears, you know, on a hit by Trafton. And so if he just stays with the Bears, does he stay healthy? And does he just, like, terrorize the league for years and really does, like, come to, you know, fulfill the the destiny that looked like he was in, in store for? You know, so for me, it's, uh, it's, it's Grange coming to a contract agreement in 26 and staying a Bear forever and just, like, what he could have done with that. I find that to be fascinating. That's that's a great answer. Uh, all right. So next next category. So this and, and look, I, I, we have to at least have this conversation. Like you have to assume that the skill level translates to the modern game. Of okay? course. So that's so like I get that these guys were small, on these guys were, you know, not as fast or as big or as strong as all that stuff, right? But you have to assume like they're that's good in the nineteen twenties, and you get that um playing on this question right so assuming skill level translates to the modern game what player from the 20s would you put on the 2006 bears to make them to, to put them over the top to win the super bowl
1: well jeff and i think of the 2006 bears i think of are great running backs thomas jones to a much lesser extent cedric benson you've got wide receivers you got moose you got Barron. you have a great o-line you have a fantastic defense like i don't i can't think of a hole on that defense and you got great special teams no offense to rex grossman but he's the, he's sure. the weak link on that team so it's a no-brainer you go you go patty driscoll or you go Joey Sternerman, two very successful all-pro QBs from that time period. It's got to be one of them.
0: Yeah, I, and I'll just I'll uh I'll put my weight on, my thumb on the scale for Patty Driscoll because he was like a consistent star for two franchises. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's got to be Driscoll, you know, you, you take him in the 26, 27 season. Um that that's the guy that that puts the Bears over in 2006. You know, I defended Rex for a long time. You did. But he is we the all weak did. link. And, 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 and it'll be interesting to see in other decades because, um, you know, you, we don't always have the obvious quarterback to replace Grossman. So – uh, you know, though, maybe we burn the quarterback here. Maybe one other time. Uh, there's at least one other answer. Time. Quarterback. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely one other time. But other than that, it may. You know, we have to maybe go elsewhere. So, all right. Well, what about this roster? What about the 2020 roster that's coming up in the fall? What player from the 20s would you most want on the Bears 2020 roster? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say you can't pick Driscoll.
1: Can't pick Driscoll. I, I wasn't planning on it. I'm going either. Joey Sturmman or Ed Healy. I think Joey Sturmman is kind of uh, maybe a cross between your uh, Tariq Cohen and uh, Taysom Hill for the New Orleans Saints. He's some. He's a <laughs> okay. Swiss Army knife. He's athletic. Yeah, he's small, but he's tough as nails. And you can put him in the slide, you can put him in the backfield, you could run wildcat stuff with him, you could probably play defense. I bet he returns punts, I bet he returns kicks, I bet he's a gunner on special teams, and he's looking to knock someone out in every play. So, I, I forget Healy, for this one I'm going steering him in. He's versatile, he fits in in the modern game. I love your passion.
0: Alright, <laughs> okay, so here's what I'm doing. Alright, um, I, I guess we don't know exactly what's going to happen in free agency or the draft because we're, we're recording this. Uh, towards the end of march we have we've, we've entered um, we've entered free agency but the bears have not signed a right guard yet okay. and so what i'll do is i'm going to take trafton and what i'm going to do is i'm going to have him play center and i'm going to kick whitehair over to right guard i know that's another position change for whitehair um, but I, I i really think he's more naturally a guard he's also country strong and i think he would play right guard quite well and so i get my get my 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 nasty streak uh, center in there and I'm able to complete that offensive line with uh you know really solid up and down I don't really think there's a weak link there it's probably Massey but Massey's fine um so I really solidify my offensive line by being able to to pull up Trafton there and
1: uh you maybe you love you love you some Trafton
0: I do I think he's great um I think he's probably gonna get suspended at some point um so we still want to <laughs> add some depth yeah <laughs> but uh that's, uh that's my guy. So. All right, just uh, two categories left. Um, This one I think is pretty fun, but uh, we're going to go the opposite way. So, who from the modern era bears would have the most impact on the 1920s, right? So, you get to pick one of these guys to take backwards. And I picked these guys. I don't know if these are the right guys, but I think it's an interesting conversation to have. So, you can either take back Brian Erlacher. Charles Peanut Tillman or Devin Hester? Who are you taking back to the 20s that are going to have the biggest impact?
1: I think for the time period, who is catching Devin Hester? Even if you slow him down a bit. Mm-hmm. He he would be someone that people would come to see. Not huge, so he's, he's going to fit in during that time period because he's not a huge guy. But uh, people would come to watch him return a kick for a touchdown. What? Every other kick return or uh you put him in the backfield you flip him the ball and say make these people miss and run for a touchdown uh, I think he would be a huge huge draw in the 1920s it's
0: interesting so I, I you know I you, you don't you'd have to put Hester kind of in the backfield as a halfback and I didn't mm-hmm. really like that um there's not much of a passing game so you're kind of taking away what Tillman does best for me I I, I thought it was Erlacher and the reason why i take him is that i actually think he could he would play both ways just fine um he's super fast and you know remember that one special
1: against, teams against touchdown? the redskins yeah
0: yep. that's that's that touchdown catch that we had and so i think he could play offense just fine but i just think uh, you know what a terror he would he would add to the to the 20s defenses and he's just he's big he's tough i just i just think he just would translate just fine um I, you know all three of them obviously you could see it but uh for me, I'm taking Urlacher back uh, into that decade.
1: I didn't want to pick Urlacher because I did not want uh, the people he murdered on my conscience from the 1920s. <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah, too he big. Would he's too fast. Yeah, he would he would murder people. He, he, on he the would field. wreck things. It would be amazing.
0: All right, so the final category, and this is the one that um, I really like this this question, and that is who won the decade. It can go any which way you want. Uh, player, coach, what well, you know, like uh, moment, whatever. Like, but like one guy that you think won the 1920s as the Chicago Bears?
1: To me, there's only one answer. He started the Bears. He is the Bears. It's George Halas. George Halas won the decade. And I, there There's some great players that we've gone over during this past hour, but it's got to be George Halas. George Halas is the Chicago Bears, and this is when the Chicago Bears were starting. He keeps the league going. He's hugely instrumental in the league, even being around and, and being successful. It's George Halas.
0: Yep. No question. I mean, I again, this is going to be a really fascinating one as we move through the decades. Uh, we're going to have some very interesting questions, uh, some debates uh, down the line. But it, it has to be George Halas here because he sets the NFL on a path for success. He shows really smart business uh, acumen as he's still playing. And mm-hmm. it's just kind of uh, remarkable to, to think about a guy in his 20s still playing pro- you know this professional football game, but making these wise personnel moves, these wise business decisions to put the NFL on a path to success and, and be a pretty good. Uh, player and a a really good coach while he's at it and so it's it's a fascinating uh, history you know obviously you guys should go out and read uh, any sort of George Hallis biography that you can but the one that I read and I think you read it too Matt was called Papa Bear Um, absolutely uh, stellar stories inside of that Mm -hmm. but absolutely we're in agreement Hallis won the 1920s So that's it. So this is our first episode. So we are done with uh, the 1920s. We're going to come back. Uh, Next episode will be the 30s, obviously, and we're just going to keep working through. Let's keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find me at gridironborn. Um, We'd love to hear your questions, and we will try to answer those in a bonus episode once we get through all 10 decades. And until then, enjoy this New Orleans band playing a song called Fly Away Flapper.